In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray, O God, who does enlighten the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, and by the gift of the same Spirit, we be always truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation through the same Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Seat of Wisdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <clears throat> <clears throat> so now we move on to the final four words from the cross. We've already considered the absolute necessity of forgiveness and all the manifold ways in, that, in which that must express itself. In response to our Lord's words, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. And then we saw the great uh, beauty of the conversion of the good thief who actually responded to the grace of God which was given to him and recognized in him, <clears throat> at least as far as we can see, recognized in him the Messiah promised by Almighty God, the King. And he asks, he asks that he should be received into his kingdom with such a, a delicacy of expression. Remember me. It's interesting. He doesn't even ask for anything. He doesn't, ask, he doesn't even ask for forgiveness. That's interesting too. He just says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I think it's because, it's the, as we said, it's a triumph of love over all. Like, uh, like, like St. Peter, uh, after his uh, really... Uh, horrific and embarrassing betrayal, that he, uh, he didn't ask for forgiveness and, and our Lord didn't ask him to apologize either. Our Lord asked him, do you love me? And the, uh, and, the, and the answer to that, thou knowest that I love thee, wipes out everything, the triumph of love overall. But love which is in conformity and in harmony with the will of God, because love like every other, every other passion of the human soul can be taken to excess. And so we then considered the amazing, really astonishing, a, uh, the, the astonishing relationship of detachment between the, <coughs> the two greatest uh, human beings and, the, and the, the greatest love story on earth, really, ever, which is that of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The, 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 uh, and that she became the co-redemptrix, really, by her suffering in her soul, in union with her divine son, the passion <clears throat> which she suffered on Calvary. But remote from her, remote during all of his public life. We've got to be, we've got to be careful that, you know, Our Lady did not practice what, rather cruelly, is called smother love. You know, mothers who sort of smother their children with love and stunt their growth. I mean, they really do genuinely love their children. There's no question about that. 
but their, but their love is disproportionate, it's disordinate, it's excessive, it's clinging, it prevents the person reaching their maturity. I mean, it's a bizarre thing too when you think that God gives us children in order for us to train them to become independent from us. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's in itself a great paradox too, isn't it really? It's remarkable. And you actually show your love for it in that manner. And, you know, it's like husbands who, who love their wives so much that they're jealous of any, any man who dares sort of look in her direction sort of thing. That's a sure way to end a beautiful marriage. <laughs> it's an exaggeration and it's an excess. And so we have this astonishing, really, example of this great, remarkable conformity of mind and heart you see that when we when we have with our true friends i mean by our really 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 close friends that we said we don't have to say much we don't have to express much do you know isn't your defense even astonishing that we that there's no although we, we've got this record of these beautiful words of our lord to our lady with no record that she answered there's no there's no record that said anything back we're told in great detail of all the abuse which our Lord received, the very words that they used to abuse him, there's not a word of comfort. Nothing. Not from anybody. Not even from Our Lady in St. John. They don't, as far as we can see, they don't say a word. Why? Well, I mean, obviously there are many reasons which we'll never be able to fathom. But I think, that, I think that also when, we, when we're in the face of extreme suffering of those that we love, You're lost for words. What can you say? What can you say? When really terrible disaster strike people, there's almost nothing you can say. The only thing that you can do is just be there and show that you're there. Remember all the catastrophes that, fought, that befell Job on the, in the Old Testament. I mean, there was just one terrible catastrophe after, after another. He lost everything. He lost his family. He lost all his property. He lost everything, 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 everything. And when his friends came to see him, they were so struck by his grief, they didn't know what to say. And they just stayed with him for a week, for a week, without saying anything. <laughs> I think that, that's a, yeah, that, that, that shows also, that this, that in a strange way, it shows the profundity of that harmony of mind and heart, which we all, in our own way, have got to be. I mean, what is, what is, I think, what I think is disordinate when it's out of, Proportion when it's out of harmony with the uh, with the uh, with the will of God, and unfortunately, of course, there are so many things in our life which we do get out of proportion. Which, as I say, was why we're having a Lent the, uh, to uh, to get things back into into focus in our lives. And from the that hour, the disciple took her to his own. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the earth. So about three hours, there was just silence. Uh, I mean, I don't say that there wasn't silence. There wasn't silence on Mount Calvary. There was silence of the prime dramatists. But you can be misled and confused because when we read the gospel, we're only told about the intimate goings-on between the people near to our Lord and the cross. Remember, our Lord was very quickly, and the thieves were very quickly put to death because the next day was the Sabbath day. Now, the next day, the Sabbath day, that's, I mean, for the, 
if you transpose that into modern life, it's a bit like Christmas Eve. So it was a major feast, but it was also a feast of great, a religious feast. It was a feast of great celebration. And people had other things to do. They had to get everything ready for the party, you know, for all the, all, all the celebrations, all the things that were going on. Our Lord was deliberately placed near the gate of the city so that all the people who were coming for the great feast, people came from all over the world for this great feast. There must have been an endless, endless, endless number of people all passing by in one direction or another, all shouting and yelling. And of course, near the gates of cities in these days, that's basically where the market more usually was. And of course, there was all the buying and the selling for the big celebration the next day. It was a scene of absolute chaos. You know, when you see a picture of the Stations of the Cross, it looks as though it's all silent. Our Lord's up there on, on the hill, and it's, everybody's in hushed reverential awe, and the people are, there are a few people abusing him. But it, it couldn't have been like that at all. And, uh, and, and in fact, it, was, it started to be the event, after the initial interest of it all, it seemed to have started to be eclipsed. People had other things to do. They'd get home and get the dinner ready and get everything prepared. And so it seems that the crowd eventually, gradually, lost interest even, apart from obviously the occasional abuse and all that kind of thing. So you have this kind of silence, but you must imagine it's a total silence, nothing of the sort. The, the, the bizarre thing about it all is the, the greatest event of history was treated with such insignificance and indifference by all the people around. Rather like our Lord's birth in Bethlehem, the same thing. It was unnoticed by the vast majority of people. Our Lord's work is, his kingdom is not of this world, and the means that he wishes to achieve that kingdom is, is likewise not of, that, not of this world. Now, death is drawing in. And it's a fact of death that, that it, it seems that the horizons, our horizons draw in when we are approaching death. Our world becomes smaller and smaller. You know, once upon a time, the world was our oyster. <clears throat> it starts closing in on us. We lose our strength. We lose our faculties. Things close in. Our world, in the end, becomes the bedroom that we're in. <laughs> That's it. That's the end of it, really. And uh, finally, the bed that we're we the bed that we're lying in. And we see that our Lord's soul also becomes something becomes abstracted from the rest of the world. In these first three words, he's, he's, he's communicating to other people. He's telling everybody that he's forgiving them. He's told the good thief he'll be in paradise. He gives our lady St. John. Now, he doesn't refer to anybody outside any longer now. And about the ninth hour, which of course is three o'clock in the afternoon, remember the Romans, the, at the time of our Lord, the, the, because at the time in the Roman Empire, they calculated the day from <clears throat> from the, um, from the, um, the six o'clock in the morning to six o'clock at night. So, this, uh, and give it 12 hours. So, the ninth hour is three o'clock in the afternoon. Our Lord cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which being interpreted is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, these are terrible, terrible words, aren't they? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Strange words. I mean, if, if our Lord was God, how on earth could he possibly have said that God had forsaken him? God can't forsake God. That's an impossibility. 
And of course, for that reason that a lot of skeptics say, well, I mean, Christ proves that he wasn't God when he said on the cross, God, somewhere else in heaven, somewhere else, why have you abandoned me here on earth? He was, he was, he was, he was only a human being. So we must try to have a, understand a little bit of theology. Remember that, 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 that the, incarn- the, 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 the union of our Lord, the hypostatic union of his divinity uh, with his humanity is kind of disproportionate, if you like. Obviously, the humanity, is much, the humanity is much, much less than the divinity. And yet it's taken by the same person. The same person is God and man. And so we got to see that, we could imagine that God who is eternally happy, God can never be unhappy. Nothing can bother God. Nothing can frustrate God. Nothing can upset God. <laughs> nothing. It's impossible. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. That the, the, the humanity of our Lord had to be formed in such a manner that, he, uh, that the greater part of him didn't overwhelm the lesser part of him. And so I think theologians generally explain that, that, the, that the power of the divinity in our Lord's humanity was uh, not suspended but uh, limited in order to give him the possibility to really truly uh, suffer as we suffer. So our Lord in his sacred humanity, but you can remember it isn't in his sacred humanity that he suffers. And when he cries as a cry of anguish, he says it as a human being. And even what he expresses, look, look, notice up to now that our Lord has said that the first word, Father, and the last word, Father, but not this word. He doesn't refer to God as his Father. He refers to God as his God, insofar as his human nature recognizes the will and the divinity of his heavenly Father. Our Lord took everything upon us except sin. But he took, he took upon himself the consequences of sin and the suffering of sin and the desolation and the anguish and the agony that sin brings. And the ultimate, of course, the ultimate uh, punishment of sin is hell. And hell is hell. Hell is uh, the, um, the absence of God. If you like the abandonment, the, the God has, so to speak, abandoned the soul in hell. That is the ultimate punishment. And our Lord took all the sinfulness of mankind upon himself and he expiated it, as we know, we actually expiated by suffering in his body for our sins, by being crowned with thorns and scourged and nails put through his hands and feet. That's what he, we think about that as being the main thing that he did. But I think that really, like every human suffering, really, ultimately the worst human suffering is the suffering of the soul, the suffering, the inner suffering. If you can put up with a lot, if you're at peace and content inside, but if you're disturbed inside, you can't put up with anything. <laughs> it's just a fact of life. It's amazing how resilient human beings are if they are okay in their soul. And so our Lord takes upon himself the anguish of soul, the abandonment of the, 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 abandonment of the soul, takes upon himself this, the, the, the separation from God. Do you know, even in human terms, I think it's understood, I've never been in this situation, but uh, I think it's understood that uh, 
total isolation is the worst thing that can happen to you. That's why, for example, in prisons, that uh, the worst, I think, but reckon, maybe apart from actual physical torture, but maybe not even then, the worst punishment is to be put into solitary confinement. That's meant to be the worst thing. Why? I mean, honestly, you probably think the same as me. If, God forbid, one day I've got to prison, I'd be begging for solitary confinement. <laughs> be like living in a hotel, wouldn't it? You have your own private room. You'll be away from all these savages, all these animals. That's what you think. And that's what you might enjoy for uh, a week or two. But then eventually it would appear that you go crazy. And it kind of makes sense because remember that God has made man. He says he's made us for each other. We're social beings. God said when, when, when Adam was all alone in paradise, when Adam was all alone in the Garden of Eden, sounds very nice, really. That sounds great. Nobody to disturb you or to contradict you or annoy you or irritate you or anything like that. No. He was sad. Even though he had everything. And so it was God said, oh, God said it's not good for man to be alone. And it's not. It's good in, well, <clears throat> in phases. It's very good in phases. It's bad to be constantly surrounded by noise and disruption and so on. But it's bad. It's ultimately bad. And so our Lord, our Lord took, t takes this greatest of all sufferings upon himself, this desolation. And I think that that's why it explains it. It's all part of God's providence, too, that he received no comfort from anybody uh, verbally. As we say, it's even strange. There's nothing recorded. That, uh, that Our Lady in St. John said nothing. Everybody else who was abusing him, they said nothing. It, 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 our Lord seems to, uh, seems to have taken upon himself the extreme. The, the, I look for one to, as it says in the Psalms, I look for one to, 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 to console me, and there was none. There was none. Absolutely nobody. Total, complete isolation. That's the punishment of hell. And isn't it an extraordinary thing that, God, that our Lord takes upon himself, what we can say really almost the very punishment of hell. And he thus, by doing all that he's done and accepting the ultimate price, really, for all of our sins, he proves not only the great generosity of his love and so on, but he proves by what he's done, it's a proof, that he is, in fact, the promised saviour of the chosen people, the Messiah, and the saviour of the world. And by saying these words, these words of extreme desolation, he points to the facts. And it's another act of mercy. It's a terrible thing, but it's an act of mercy at the same time towards his enemies, towards the people who are still standing around abusing him. I think that probably the last people to leave, <laughs> the last people to leave Calvary were the high priests and the scribes because they had put him there they had nailed him to the cross and I'm sure they didn't want they wanted to be in control of the situation and know it was all going to be okay and it, but when he left he was gone dead so it's for, our, it's for their benefit that our Lord says this why? 
Because it is, in fact, a quotation from the Holy Scriptures. It's a quotation from Psalm 21. uh, Our Lord not only fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament that you read in Isaiah, etc., Micaiah, etc., and so on, but he actually... uh, he, he actually also, in a striking manner, fulfilled the prophecies which are found in the Psalms. And I think it's a, it's a very interesting thing that, that our Lord, it would appear from this and from what I'm going to say later if there's time, that, he, uh, that our Lord would appear to have, perhaps, we don't know, we only, he, only, he, we only, he, only, he only enunciated a few short quotations, uh, perhaps during these that long silence on the cross recited the Psalms. Now, but you think that, of course, that's probably why the church's official worship is the Holy Mass, which, of course, is Calvary, and the Divine Office, which is the Psalms. And so uh, our Lord actually lived this himself. Um, And I say that he says this because they were the high priests, and they knew, better than you or I knew, they knew the Psalms particularly back to front which although I've been a priest now for 50 years, and I've been saying the Psalter every week for the last half a century, I cannot recite 150 psalms or anything even remotely approaching it. And I'll tell you why. (laughs) I'll tell you why, because A, I read it. And B, I read a million other things. And I read the newspaper and I look at the computer and I do many other things in my life. This is the days before books. This is the days when if you knew anything at all, you had to know it here, because you couldn't just go and look it up. We find it, we find it very hard. You know, people laugh at the, in fact, they actually criticize forms of education where you get children to repeat things. That's the only way that children could learn anything in the past. There were no books in schools. You couldn't afford them. But you had to write books by hand. I mean, try it for a minute. I mean, try to write, try writing out the Bible. Start when you go home. <laughs> hey, hey, and, and not even, not with a pen and ink either, but with a with a with a with a bar, or even try to type it into the, or even read it into the computer, into the word processor, and see how long it takes you. You see how valuable books were. So, they, so it's it's safe to say that these people knew the Psalms. Our Lord Himself, quite apart from His divinity, would have been able to quite quote the Psalms. That's all people learned. For the Jews of that time, the only thing worth knowing was the things about their religion. So they were saturated with it. And when our Lord said Psalm 21, he was telling them, look, he was telling to his enemies, look, I am fulfilling what David said of me 1,000 years earlier. Our Lord's life, our Lord is the only person, the details of whose life, the details of whose life, were foretold hundreds, thousands of years before. Well, that's why we believe. Why do we believe that Jesus is God? We don't believe Jesus is God just because he says so. I mean, if you believe that, you'd be crazy. You can't, you can't believe people who tell you any old thing, and especially if they tell you that they're God. That's ridiculous. You've got to verify, wait a minute, he says he's God, is he God? And then you say, oh, well, sure enough, all that, all that he's been doing all that he's done, all that he's said, has all been foretold centuries before, and he's done it. That's what our Lord, our Lord himself explains it himself. That's the reason for believing him. Remember when the disciples 
on the way to Emmaus. They were so upset and distressed that the great promised Messiah had died as a miserable failure on the cross. And our Lord appears to them in disguise, and he starts explaining to them the scriptures and said, goodness me, I thought, he actually rebukes them for not knowing their Bible properly. He said, well, you should know this. Don't you know that it it says in the Holy Scriptures? And he explained to them all that was written about what was to happen. That's it. And that's why this this is highly, highly significant. Because we're really running out of time now. I'll just read you the relevant verses from Psalm 21 because it's startling, even, even for us. 1,000 years earlier, our Lord says on the cross, uh, our Lord recites what was written a 1,000 years earlier. Oh God, my God, look upon me. Why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my sins. O my God, I shall cry by day, and thou wilt not hear, and by night, and it shall not be reputed as folly to me. I, uh, I'm jumping a few verses. I am a worm, and no man, the reproach of men, and the outcast of the people. That's what he was, just at that very moment. All they that saw me laughed me to scorn. They have spoken with the lips, and wag the head, saying, this is alarming, saying, he hoped in God, let him deliver him, let him save him, seeing that he delighteth in him. That's exactly what I read to you yesterday. That's what they said. They mocked him with these very words, these very words, before he recited the psalm. The Holy Scriptures had so entered into their manner of speaking, I don't know if they even alluded to the fact. They should have done now, but they they alluded to the fact. It's like we're constantly, without knowing it, we're constantly uh, quoting the Scriptures. How often do you say things like, I don't know, he gave up the ghost. That's a quotation quotation. from from our Lord dying on the cross and giving up the ghost. We're going to read it in just a few minutes. But you say it without even realizing it. But it is, because, because again, once upon a time, the only books that people had to read were their Bibles. <clears throat> and so the Holy Scriptures were so ingrained in their mind. And so our Lord is telling, it's a warning to them, it's a shocking warning to them. They've opened their mouths against me as a lion raving and moan. I am poured out like water, all my bones are scattered. I am become like wax, melting in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws because of lack of, 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 because of dehydration, because lack of water. One of the worst, one of the, one of the worst, the ultimate, the ultimate final agony of crucifixion is to die of burning thirst, actually, strangely enough. It's not from nails and uh, etc. They have dug my hands and my feet. That's what they've done. They put the nails through it. They have numbered all my bones. They have looked upon me and stared at thee. And they parted my garments amongst them, and upon my vesture they cast lots. Even these apparent trivial details foretold 1,000 years earlier. And what was their response? <laughs> Sadly, again, you see, they did not, they did not respond. 
And some that stood there cared and said, Behold, this man calleth Elias. Well, they knew perfectly well he was not calling Elias. Because, because of the Aramaic words, Eli, Eli, or Eloi, Eloi in, the, in Hebrew, I think. Yeah, but they, uh, they twisted it. They deliberately twisted it. They knew what it meant. I presume that the ordinary common people, they wouldn't have known much better. That they, 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 you can twist the, the scriptures and deceive them. And of course, the, the Roman soldiers, they wouldn't have known any better. They deliberately twisted it. I mean, that's shocking. That's very, very shocking to do that. Their deceit, their animosity, their hatred went as far as that. They had, again, a last, another moment to repent, and, and, and they didn't. And by, why did they say that? Why did they say he's calling for that? Even, even that wasn't just an idle thing. Because Elias, of course, is one of the, the great prophet of the Old Testament. But he was known he, 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 in Jewish tradition, he was understood to be the great helper of the Jews. That, he, uh, that in times of trouble and tribulation, and particularly uh, in times of national disaster, for example, the time of the Maccabees and so on, Elias would come uh, and help, uh, help the chosen people. And of course, it was, it's foretold that Elias will come before the Messiah, before the Savior at the end of time. So when they were saying that, they were again, they were proving, trying to prove him to be an imposter. Because if he was God, if he was the son of God, why would he be calling on one of his servants to come to help him? <laughs> it sounds as though Elias is greater than him. You know, it's deliberate deceit. And what was the consequence of that? Some of them that stood there and heard said, Behold, he calls for Elias. Afterwards, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. That the scripture should be fulfilled, I thirst. Well, <laughs> we're not fulfilling the scripture every time that we say that we're thirsty. Again, are, are we? Again, it's a, it's, 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 it's a quotation from, uh, it's a quotation from, and uh, yet, yet, yet another psalm. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and there, I won't read that psalm because otherwise we'll never end. We are told that in the Psalms, again, there's a prophecy of this fact of our Lord's thirst, even to not only his thirst, but what they actually gave him to slake the thirst. Even that's told. They gave me gold for my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So they give him wine mixed with gall. Not exactly on this one, this one moment, but at uh, this precise moment, but earlier on in the sacred passion he did. As I see, our Lord was now approaching fast his end. And I think that the, 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 I, I understand, I don't know anything about, about anatomy or medicine or anything, but I think that crucifixion is deliberately, of course, a, uh, designed to make you live in agony for as long as is reasonably possible. And, one of, uh, and so that towards the end, because of the, obviously the loss of blood, and, the, the, and you fall into a kind of a delirium and so on, and, and if you're not hydrated, hydrated then of course you, you thirst. And, and the, the, the pain, the agony of thirst, takes over all other sufferings. 
And in the end, you die of fire. You die of a burning, burning dust. Just like in the fires of hell. Do you, do you remember when our, when our Lord told the parables of, 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 the, of, the, um, of the rich man and, uh, and Lazarus? I won't tell you the whole story. But, 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 but the, man, the man in hell asked Lazarus to give him a drink. <laughs> to give him a drink as a relief from hell. And so these soldiers actually seemed, oddly enough, these soldiers seemed to be moderately moved by compassion. And there was a vessel there full of vinegar. And immediately one of them running took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed with hyssop and offered it to his mouth and gave him to drink. But some of the others said, no, let's see where Elias will come and deliver him. Now, we are, the, 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 our Lord was offered this and he offered it to his mouth and they gave him to drink. And he drank. And he drank as he has promised. And he said to the apostles at the Last Supper, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it in the kingdom of my father. So the next time that we know that he, that he drank wine was not actually, <laughs> not in the splendors of heaven, where of course there's no wine anyway, but here on earth in the kingdom of his father accomplished on the cross. And he drank it. Now, I don't know if you remember, but earlier on, there's two times when our Lord was actually offered wine to drink. When they got to Calvary, he was offered wine mixed with gall, or wine mixed with myrrh. And we are told that he tasted it, but he did not drink it. But this time he did drink it. And what's the difference? The difference is that wine mixed with gall or with myrrh is a, got a narcotic effect. So, in spite of the horrendous cruelty of crucifixion, that it was allowed a certain limited uh, compassion, limited, very limited compassion, to be shown to these poor criminals. And so, it's understood that pious ladies, a, uh, sympathetic ladies, because uh, it's, it's, always, it's always ladies who have got compassion for those who are weak, that they would provide these criminals just before their deaths with a drink of this wine to slightly numb their senses so that this horrific, horrendous thing was going to happen to them was a kind of a last gesture of, of mercy. And we think that, for example, the women who, leapt, who wept over Jerusalem, our Lord on the, way, on the way of the cross were these powerful women. So it was an act of mercy which would have alleviated the suffering slightly. Our Lord didn't take it. He was gracious. He didn't reject their kind offer. He tasted it as an act of... Well, imagine thinking about good manners when you're in that kind of situation. It shows the delicacy of our Lord's soul. By good manners, he actually tasted it, but he didn't drink it. But yet he drank it, because it's a different scenario altogether. Because that wine would not slake his thirst it would create an inferno in his throat. <laughs> and so he accepted again this act of mercy, if it was an act of mercy, or was it just another additional cruelty? 
It's hard to tell. Because obviously these soldiers were not the most delicate sort of people around. <laughs> so, he, so, 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 so he took it, and he took it again to show the extremes to which he would go in order to make reparation for our sins. And isn't it interesting that this last final agony is made worse by drinking. And the very first sin, original sin, was committed by eating. <laughs> original sin comes into the world by eating, and its final expiation, or the last act of its expiation, is by drinking, by our Lord drinking. And everything about this shows that the, 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 this wine and its massive, its massive significance, because we're totally seen put on a reed of hyssop, and it's put on a reed of hyssop, which is a plant with a stalk, and that's the very plant which we tell in the Bible that God told the Jews to sprinkle their houses with the blood of the Paschal Lamb in Egypt so that they would be released from their sins. And so this sponge is put on, is put on hyssop and it's offered to, and, 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 and Moses also cleansed the people with the blood of the victims at the time of the covenant. So that this is another, a wonderful symbol of our Lord's precious blood for our salvation and its cleansing effect. Do you know, why did these soldiers hold wine there too? Well, it's probably, obviously, to, to help them, to, uh, to help them and to, to go through with their gory task. Imagine, I mean, just imagine having a job like that. I mean, it's just horrendous, the very thought of it. I mean, putting nails into, into people and imagine the state of our Lord's body and they must have themselves been covered in blood. I mean, it's disgusting by any standard of means. My God, they needed it. They needed a little bit of comfort and consolation, really. But also, they probably, why do they have a sponge? I think they had a sponge because they could wipe themselves down. They could wash off this blood because it would have been horrible. Imagine, it would all be stinking. It would be disgusting after a very short time. So, so, so they were able to wash themselves and cleanse themselves with this wine, this bitter wine, another wonderful, marvelous symbol of our, of, of our Lord's, uh, of our Lord's uh, compassion. And I think that we see in that God's thirst for souls. And in the words of our Lord, why have thou, thou, for, for, why have thou forsaken me? He's taken upon the punishment of hell by its isolation, right? Separation from God. And he's taken, he's taken on the spiritual punishments of hell. He's now taken on the physical punishments of hell, hell fire. And he does this in expiation for our sins. And although he's abandoned, and we make that, we can make that prayer ourselves. We do every time we say it in the Psalms. Isn't it also paradoxical that really, in fact, God never abandons us? Just as he never abandoned our Lord. He may appear to be invisible. He may appear to have been abandoned, abandoned us, but yet he will sustain us to the end. So our Lord's abandonment is not only just taking on the punishment of sin, it's also to give us encouragement in our Calvary. Because there are times in our journey, in our Calvary, too, that we do feel like our Lord, we feel abandoned by Almighty God. But at the same time, it's a, it's a prayer of confidence. It's a prayer to seek to understand God's loving hand in what he is suffering. 
And so much that what we suffer is because we've abandoned God. It's actually, you know, God, if God has seems to have abandoned us, it's because we've abandoned him in the first place. Because we can, all, we can think about that ourselves. And again, this thirst of our Lord, this thirst for, 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 for souls, for the souls of mankind, we've got to have a thirst for him. That, and it's that thirst for him which keeps us going through the desert of these desolations. It's all very full of, 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 of marvelous lessons, if only, if only we, we, we can take them. <clears throat> Others said, state, let us see what our lives will come down and deliver him. When Jesus therefore had taken the vinegar, and the vinegar means it was, it's what we would call plonk, really. It's called vinegar because it was, it was the lowest uh, sort of grade of vinegar. It was often like, like if somebody gives you a glass of wine, you, you think it's going to be nice. <laughs> you put it in your mouth, you think, oh my God, it's vinegar. <laughs> it's a, it was, it was really, it was really that kind of thing. That, that, that's what, that, that, that's what it's, that's what he's offered. He was offered, he was offered this, this vinegar. He, uh, then he he said, it is consummated. It's finished. Everything is now done. The will of his heavenly father has been accomplished. The work of redemption is over. The business which he told our lady that he had to be about at the beginning of her life she knows here, here at the beginning of his public life. She knows here, she she now hears him saying, "It's accomplished now. It's finished." See another 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 translation is, "It's finished. It's consummated. It's finished. Everything is complete. All the prophecies of the all the prophecies of the Old Testament are complete. All that God promised to mankind is done." All that was foretold has now been accomplished. That's why it's also highly significant that our Lord really recited these psalms. It's a final prayer of thanksgiving. There's only death left. He's not finished. He didn't say, I'm finished, <laughs> which is another thing. He said, it's finished. I'm finished doing that which had to be finished, if you like. And again, I think it's, it's a very interesting, it's a diary version that, the, uh, that, the, uh, that translates it as it's consummated. I mean, normally, of course, consummation, I mean, it's, it's used in many contexts, but uh, in its most uh, common context, it's, uh, it refers to the consummation of marriage. And, uh, of course, it's highly significant here, too, that the, uh, because, as we say, that the church is born from the side of Christ, as we said the other night, by the water and blood that came forth, baptism and the, uh, and the Holy Eucharist, the sacraments, the, the life of grace that flows from the side of Christ, as uh, Ezekiel saw the waters flowing from the side of the temple, that the, uh, that, that the marriage, so to speak, of Christ, of Jesus, our Savior and our God, is finally consummated. It's made unshakable, unbreakable, forever. So it's not only just, you know, that everything's been done, that had to be done, that it's more than that. That God's union with us, it's, we have a mystical marriage with him. 
And you know, you know, like we say about the, about the, about the marriage vows, you know, I, I take you to, for better, for worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health. It's a comfort to think that if that is true, if that interpretation is true, and I think it's St. Augustine who speaks about the, the cross being the marriage bed of a, uh, the marriage bed uh, of, of, of redemption. If that's true, then God's made the kind of a contract with us that he takes us for better or worse. Oh, that's consoling, isn't it? Because there's plenty worse in us. <laughs> and, 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 and will be with us, hopefully will be with us, until death do not us part, but till death unite us at the end. So I think that these words are of a great, great comfort to us. So now we come to, to the, the final, the, the end. And having said it's consummated, Jesus crying with a loud voice said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Another quotation from yet another psalm. So you see that all these things are quotations from, from the psalms of the fulfillment of a, the, the, the fulfillment that was all foretold. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. So our Lord gives his soul, his spirit, into his heavenly Father. And seeing this, bowing down his head, he gave up the ghost. Now, I think that most people give up the ghost and then they bow their head. And they go, <gasps> our Lord did the opposite. Our Lord bowed his head first. And he gave up the ghost. I think it's an indication that he's in command. He's in control. I think we all understand, obviously, that our Lord was not put to death in the normal sense of the word. Nobody killed him. You can't kill God. It's impossible. They intended to do it. The crime that they committed was the intention to do it, but they couldn't do it. And remember when our Lord was a good shepherd, when he gives the story of the good shepherd, he said the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. And he said, I lay it down because I lay it down and I take it back again because I'm doing it. This is the will which I've received from my father. God's in, our Lord is in complete, total command of the situation. That's why his sacrifice is a total, complete sacrifice. It's not got any element of accident in it. You know, if, some, if you get put to death or even if you're martyred, it does have, I mean, obviously everything in God's providence is arranged from all eternity, but it can have a kind of element of accident about it. I mean, our Lord even says, you know, <laughs> sometimes if you can, avoid it. I mean, run to the mountains, escape from your persecutors. It, it's allowed. <laughs> but, our Lord, but our Lord here was in complete command of the situation. And I believe, I don't know any Greek, <clears throat> because the, the, the Gospels are written in Greek, uh, that, uh, that when you said, I commend my soul, it doesn't mean to say, I give you my soul. It means I, I trust my soul uh, with the intention of getting it back. Rather like when you put money in the bank. Well, you used to put money in the bank. Now, of course, the money, when it goes in the bank, is no longer yours. <laughs> now, the world in which we're living now. But the, uh, the, the idea was you put the money in the bank for safekeeping and you, you put it in. Uh, to take it out. <laughs> There's no point in having it if you can't take it out again. So you put it in to take it out. And I think that the Greek word, the Greek verb is that. So again, it's, 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 everything about our Lord's words are, are full of comfort and full of hope and full of anticipation. That his death, his crucifixion is not an end in itself. It's not an end in itself. 
It's a means to an end. And that end is the resurrection. It's the glorious resurrection. Our death, our crucifixion, our Calvary, it's not an end in itself. I mean, Christianity is not meant to be uh, a, a, a religion for, a, um, for, for, for people who, who, who hate themselves and, and, and who can only, only love misery and renouncement. It's ridiculous. No. It's full of comfort and joy. It's, it's beyond, the, beyond the power of suffering. And our Lord's resurrection, of course, is the proof of his divinity. So he dies on the cross, not from any weakness, but he dies from power. He gave up the ghost by his own volition. And again, I think that's a final, like, that's a final lesson for us too. Because really, our life should not be an accident. I mean, we may have an accident. You know, we might get run over by a bus or something when we're going home. That be, and everybody will say, "Oh, it's terrible! Did you hear about Mrs. Blog? She had an accident after after the Lenten mission." But of course, nothing's really an accident. But quite apart from the the unknown dispositions of God's providence, our life should be. We should be really in such a state each day that we are actually prepared and ready for that day for that accident. That we like our law, we should have everything spiritually, anyway, at least spiritually, but even materially, because it's an act of charity, you know, just to die and leave everybody to sort out all your affairs. Well, it's not very, it's not very considerate. It's a bit selfish. Yeah, we should actually, we should actually be prepared, really, for that day in every sense. I mean, people are usually quite good on the whole. Sensible people and quite good about their physical things. You know, they've, they've made their will. They've appointed a power of attorney. They know where all the money is going. They sometimes leave instructions on the mantelpiece. You know, when, if I, when I die, open this and uh, they get, But do they make anything like the same preparation for their soul? I mean, they're preparing for something that they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know when it will happen. It may happen tomorrow. It may happen in 20 years' time. For some people, it may happen in half a century's time or more. You don't know. But at least they're prepared. And that's what we're meant to be also. Likewise, our death like that is not to be an accident. It's meant to be a conclusion, a final conclusion of all that we have done or will do for the future, all that we have done or will do. And our Lord had everything all sorted out. He left, really, in a sense, you can say he left nothing to accident. He had nothing left when he died. Not even, not even a family, not even his mother, not a tomb. He had nothing. But his death was our birth. This is the great thing about it. Our Lord's death is our birth. And we told that he cried out with a loud voice. He cried out the last words with a 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 with a, with a, with a loud voice. That's that's not just mentioned in passing. How could you die with a loud voice when you're in such a pitiable state? When you when you've been by after he'd even drank all this wine and so he was in a state that it's astonishing he could speak at all. I mean that's why the centurion standing by said. When he heard it, he said, this, this man's amazing. 
This man was a just man. This man is a son of God, whatever he meant by the son of God, because he was a pagan. This is, this is superhuman. This, doesn't, this cannot happen. You cannot have the force to do that. But he, he shouts it out because it's the, if you like, it's a, the birth pangs, it's a scream, if you like, of a woman in labor. It's the birth pangs of humanity. Or it's the cry of a roaring lion ready to snatch its prey. It's a cry against the evil one. It's not, it's, it, St. Peter says that the devil is going around like a roaring lion to come and eat us up if we're not careful. Well, our Lord is also like a roaring lion. It's astonishing that he could speak at all, really, at the end of it all. A remarkable thing. And it's again to underline that fact that everything culminates in this. That we, now he's dead, we are safe. Somebody said, I can't remember, somebody said, because of our Lord's death, the sinner can breathe easier. And you can take that again, like so many things that I've said during this mission, you can take it either way. The sinner can breathe easier. And that's what the sinners on Calvary did. That's what the high priest had done. They must have imagined, they must have been so relieved when he was out of the way. They must have been so happy. After all that, he's gone. And then, being holy men that they were, they, they were, they could now go back to the church, they could go back to the temple and look forward to the Easter, <laughs> the Easter celebrations, knowing that their arch enemy was out of the way. But there's another way of interpreting it, of course, that the sinner can breathe easier, because we are all sinners, and so now we can all breathe easier, because we know that our Lord has taken all of his sins upon us. And we, like them, but for totally different reasons, can breathe a sigh of relief. St. Paul says, I think this was the, the, uh, to the uh, Hebrews, if I'm not mistaken, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living gods. That's what he says. But somebody else, I don't know, I'd read it somewhere. Somebody else said, yeah, that's right, of course, it's Holy Scriptures. Yeah, but it's not so fearful to fall into the hands of a dying God. And isn't that lovely? It's even more, it's, it's beautiful. It's not so fearful to fall into the hands of a dying God. So that's what we do today at the end of this mission. We fall into the arms or into the hands of Christ, our God, our Savior, our brother, our friend, dying for love of us. And we make our prayer at the end of this mission, and hopefully we make this prayer at the end of our lives, this self-same prayer as our Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my soul. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. <clears throat> Holy Queen, Mother of mercy, hail our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this veil of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us. 
And after this, our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. Praise the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.